our hearty band of in-person people here and those of you online. Thank you so much for coming. So, let's start with our refrain for the day. Each week I've been giving us a refrain. And um, today it's from, as it has been in the past, it's from Dogen's Uji, or the time being, a short sentence which we can do as a call and response. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. All, All things as moments. You'll get better at it as we repeat it. <laughs> so today I'm going to take a meandering path through the subjects of past time, memory, and the practice of art. A little bit about that. Next week will be our last seminar on time, and I've asked Maya Elric, who is our dear Sangha member who lives in Albuquerque, to share the time with me. She'll speak for the first half of the Dharma talk, and I'll do the second. She's a geologist, and she'll speak about geological time and how this long view can help us as we look toward the future. I think she'll speak about that, among other things. And I'll speak about the human lifespan and about slowing down. So the more I study time, the more I see that everything is connected to time. I'm becoming kind of bewitched by the subject, wanting to learn more, everything. I keep wanting to read things that people point me to. And I want to share everything I learn, which of course is impossible. And each week, as I'm preparing my talk, I keep adding new paragraphs, and the talk gets longer and longer, and then I cut some, and then I add some different new ones, and then I have to cut some. And I just go on and on like that. And I've been working on this talk for days, but it's still not really finished. And so why, why is this happening to me? I think it's because it's about time. And I took the subject up in the first place because I struggle with time. And so, I wanted to look at that and look at time in general, just not, my, not just my own struggle. But I think I've put myself in a kind of time laboratory where I'm grappling with time at a really visceral level during these weeks, noticing how it passes from one human-defined week to the next, from a day we humans have arbitrarily agreed to call Wednesday to the next day with the same label which we have decided will come seven days after the last one. And right now, here I am starting my third talk. And tomorrow, it will be Thursday. And then there will be one more talk to go. So this coming week, I vow not to struggle so much with time. I'm going to try to have a more comfortable relationship. I've been saying that to myself, but I'm really going to try again and see if time and I can go along together. I'll try to hold hands with time, and I'll report back to you how it goes. And even if I do struggle with my talk next week, I'm still happy to get to do it again. I've really enjoyed these explorations a lot. And there's another important and alive part of these seminars, 
which is that you are all here too with me on Zoom and in this room, and you are part of what happens too. And that part is unknown right now to any of us. I can't decide what words get spoken. I'm saving time for that part, time for spontaneity, time for the unexpected. Norman suggests that it's a good idea to agree with reality. I see that this means agreeing with time, too. And agreeing with time means going with the flow. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. Yes. I'm going to start with talking about photography. We speak of taking a photo, and the word taking implies that we can get, it, get something and keep something, a piece of our life, a piece of time. People photograph their vacations as a way to hold on to the experience, to keep it from disappearing completely into the past. In places like Yosemite, there are road signs next to the turnouts saying view spot with a little picture of a camera on the sign. Sometimes you can get so obsessed with taking the picture that you don't really bother to look at the view before you. You snap the shot and get right back in the car. I've seen people do that. I may have done it myself, but I hope not. Still, photos of the past are wonderful to have. Back in the days before digital photography, my kids loved to look at the photo albums I kept of their childhoods. They would look at them over and over again. I did the same when I was a child growing up. I'd look at the photo of myself at about three in a dress with big red flowers on it, standing in my grandmother's garden holding a watering can. I think I can remember that moment, but do I just remember the photo? Does it matter? For me, the practice of photography is a practice of gratitude. Gratitude for light itself and for how generous it is to land on everything it meets. All you have to do is frame it. It's also the practice of gratitude for time, for the moments that keep being given. So each photograph is an image of space-time, as Tom White called it, or the time being, as Dogen called it the joining of a specific moment and a specific place. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke about my experience on the Capitol Corridor train from Sacramento to Berkeley, when I realized with great joy that I was riding the train through the moments of my life, each one flowing into the next and each one framed out the window. I'm particularly fond of the Capitol Corridor ride and I've taken lots of photos of the scenery out the window at different times of day. I had a little show of these photos some years ago at a local bakery, and I want to show you a couple of these because they say something about time. They are photos of impermanence. Each click of the shutter is me saying, now, 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 and as soon as I say it, it's not now. Maya, can you put the first one up? So Maya's going to screen share one of these in the series. This one, I think, is of the Sassoon Marsh. Yes. I don't know. Can you make it bigger? Maybe. Yes. Great. Perfect. So um, 
that's, you can see the reflection of the train windows the, on the other side of the train that I'm looking, and I'm looking through one window, and you see the reflection of the opposite windows behind me, and the hills out those windows, and you see a flock of birds in the air between the two window reflections, and the birds are in flight, but they're not moving in the picture, even though birds in flight is about as moving as something can get. It's the essence of change, but there they are still. So somehow this photo encapsulates the world outside the train and the world inside the train, two different spaces that are meeting in this moment, traveling at different speeds but occupying the same brief moment, along with the birds stopped in their flight. So it's kind of the essence of change here. And now you can show the second one. This one is taken uh, of the old CNH sugar factory in Port Costa, and the train goes right by it. And I just really love this view of seeing that factory. And in this photograph, you can see the outline of the train window that I'm looking through. And then there's kind of another window, layers looking through various walls to the back. And the back is in pretty much in focus, and the foreground is blurred, which is intentional. I used a shutter speed that would blur the foreground so you could see that what's going by is moving fast. And you can also see another reflection in the window of the line of lights on the other side of the train behind me. So it's got these different layers of time, space, and flowing, and movement. So, thank you. You can take that down. All we have is the present moment, and this is our practice in zazen and life, to keep returning to this moment, even as it passes, just like looking out the train window frame after frame. Photography can't stop time from flowing, but it can take what we think of as a moment in time and flatten it like a pressed flower. On the top of a bookshelf at my house, I've displayed several photos of the weddings of some people dear to me in the next generation of my family, sons, nieces, nephews. It's awfully old-fashioned of me to be setting out framed wedding photos. That's what my grandmother did. And I know plenty of loving and committed couples who never bothered with a wedding, so I'm not completely sure why I do this. Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> anyway. One of those weddings on the top of the bookshelf took place 20 years ago. The bride and the groom looked very happy. I was there, and I believe that they were happy. Now they are living apart, and they're getting divorced. I guess it's time to take the wedding photo down. A photo of a wedding can't ensure that the vow, till death do us part, will be kept, even though it was sincerely made. This is a particularly hard lesson in impermanence. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. So, photos can bring back memories of the past, but the past is over and gone, completely outside of the present in which we live. 
So what are memories? Memories seem to be something we have. They are possessions of a kind. Does that mean we possess the past? A friend told me about an old man she knew who lived alone. She asked him with concern, aren't you lonely? No, I have my memories, he said. He must have had a good life. I've been reading Proust for the first time, something I've been meaning to do for ages, and I'm doing so now because he's famous for exploring time. His autobiographical novel in seven volumes is called, in French, A la recherche du temps perdu, which was first translated into English as Remembrance of Things Past, and later, much more accurately, as In Search of Lost Time. Where did it go, the time of Proust's childhood, his past? This is an essential human question. In searching for the lost time in his own life, Proust is exploring memory itself. He doesn't set down in chronological order all his memories of his past in order to recover it. No, he is sharing with his reader the process of trying to find the memories. In the famous Madeleine scene, the narrator of the book, who is Proust, writing at about 40, recalls being a young man of perhaps 20 who has just come in from the cold in a dreary mood. He accepts a cup of tea from his mother, and as he dips a Madeleine cookie into it, a memory starts to come out of hiding, but then it sinks back into darkness. He tries and fails, tries and fails a few times to bring it forth again, but he keeps on concentrating until finally, in a rush, he remembers drinking tea and eating a madeleine as a child with his great aunt in the summer home of his childhood. And then a flood of fresh memories bursts out of hiding. There are a few layers here. The narrator of the book, struggling to recall the true essence of the past, remembers a forgotten moment when he was a young man who, in turn, remembers a forgotten moment when he was a child. Like Dogen says, all things in the entire world are linked together as moments. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. One of my favorite books about time is called A Primer for Forgetting, Getting Past the Past by Lewis Hyde, who is an old friend of Norman's. The book, radically, is about the benefits of forgetting and even the necessity of forgetting and includes writing from many sources, personal, philosophical, and political writings. It's fascinating. It's a really wonderful book and I, it's hard to describe, but I highly recommend it. We live in a culture that is afraid of forgetting, not only of dementia, but of forgetting in general. Hyde says memory and forgetting are a pair. One is meaningless without the other. You need to clear out the closet of the mind in order to find things in it. True, if you forget everything, that's not so good. That's global amnesia, a disabling condition. At the other extreme, it turns out a very small number of people have a neurological condition called hyperthymesia, 
meaning that they can't forget anything. They remember everything they ever experienced. They can even remember every day of their lives, and they don't much like it. That's disabling, too. Forgetting is a kind of letting go, and it makes space for new possibilities. As Dogen says, to study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be awakened by the 10,000 things. When you study the self, the self loses its boundaries and expands into the universe. Lewis Hyde quotes John Cage saying, when you start working, everybody is in your studio. The past, your friends, enemies, the art world, and above all, your own ideas, all are there. But as you continue painting, they start leaving one by one, and you are left completely alone. Then, if you're lucky, even you leave. So when you forget your boundaried self, you're home free. Or rather, you get to remember that you're home free. We have memories, but memories are not the past itself. Different people who are at the same place at the same time remember what happened differently. It's a famous subject for couples to have arguments about. Remember when we got that flat tire in Nevada? No, it wasn't Nevada. It was Idaho. And our own memories of the past change their shape and color at different times in our lives. Our insights in the present can change the stories we tell ourselves about the past. And that, in turn, can change how we feel about our life in the present. A few years ago, an old friend from high school sent me a packet of letters I had written to her in my teens and early 20s. I spent the better part of a day reading through them, immersing myself in forgotten experiences that happened more than half a century in the past. I was writing about boyfriends, studies, plans for the future, even current events. But what shocked me were my disrespectful and even sarcastic comments about my parents, about how square they were, how prudish. Was I trying to impress my friend? Was this really my voice? I can't give you an example because I threw the letters away with relief after reading them, feeling I had given them the attention they needed and now could forget them again. But my poor parents. I knew they loved me, but I took that love completely for granted. What an entitled adolescent I was. Reading the letters, I had to change the story of how I related to them. I felt regret. They were both dead by then, and I had to send my love and apologies to them at an unknown address on the other side of the grave. But you can do that. It's possible. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. Our personal past is something we keep reshaping in the light of the present, and it's the same with social history. The history in our history books is not what really happened. We'll never get to the, the completely true and real past because there is no such thing. My son, Noah, teaches curriculum and cultural studies in the Department of Education at the University of Texas in Austin. 
Two years ago, he testified before the Texas legislature in defense of the teaching of critical race theory, but to no avail. They banned it from public schools K through 12. Now, two years later, a bill has introduced to do the same at the university level. That's discouraging to him and to all of us, maybe, to me. My other son, Sandy, teaches at Washington and Lee University in Virginia, named for George Washington and Robert E. Lee. A couple of years ago, at the same time period, he was active in the movement of faculty and students to change the name of the university. But after a series of public meetings, the board of the university decided against it. He was discouraged, too. Whatever your opinion is about these things, these examples make it clear how political, how subjective history is. What do we celebrate? What do we call up? As Thich Nhat Hanh said, everyone holds a piece of the truth. We need to keep on working for a more inclusive narrative. We can keep on adjusting and expanding the stories we tell. A positive change has happened in the way we Zen practitioners honor our Buddhist ancestors. And you know about this. The names we recite stand for those who have given us the Dharma through hundreds of years, taking care of it and passing it on in many ways. And this history is itself a work in progress. As you know, probably, we have added the names of women ancestors, and we have changed the word patriarch to the word ancestor. There are other changes we've made. There may be words we are chanting now whose limitations we don't yet see that will be changed in the future. But in any case, honoring the ancestors is a pre precious practice for us, even if we don't get all the data exactly right. We honor the past. Here's a poem by Saigyo, the 12th century Zen poet. Let us seek the past. Be an age that cherishes the old. Then our today, one day, will be someone's long ago. When he says be an age, he means be an era in which we cherish the old, I think. I'll, I'll read it one more time. It's so short. Let us seek the past. Be an age that cherishes the old. Then our today, one, one day, will be someone's long ago. Intensely painful feelings in the present are connected with experiences that are now in the past. But the past is gone, isn't it? So how can we deal with the pain of regret trauma, or grief. We can't go back and change the way things happen. The past is gone, but not the marks on us, as in the title of Babette Rothschild's book about trauma, The Body Remembers. I won't be going into this important topic here now, but I want to acknowledge it and to give a nod to the excellent work of Gabor Mate on healing from trauma. And for now, I just want to say that healing from the past is possible by working with what we have in the present, the memories, the scars, the monuments, the history books, and original sources. We can share the past as widely and as inclusively as possible 
going beyond ourselves to enlarge the story going forward. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. Now I'm going to turn to music and say a few words about music. Music is an art form that's made out of time. The composer or performer requires of his audience a certain amount of time. All sound happens in the flow of time, like the stream of at Tassajara with its changing harmonies that kept running on the other side of the Zendo wall from where I sat for three months, four years ago, in a practice period. I came to think of that stream as the actual sound of time passing. You can't flatten the sound of the stream or a piece of music into a single instant in order to hear it all at once. A painting or a book takes time to read or see, but you get to decide how much time. It's not made out of time the way music is. You can't pull a piece of music out of the air on its way to your ear and put it in your pocket. Music is invisible. This makes it magic. You may have heard of John Cage's piece called 4.33, or 4 minutes and 33 seconds. Its title tells you how long it takes to perform the piece. And that's what the piece is, 4 minutes and 33 seconds of time. You can watch a video of it on YouTube. A pianist in a tuxedo comes onto the stage, sits on the piano bench, opens the blank score in front of him and sits still, not touching the piano, for four minutes and 33 seconds. I'd play it for you myself, but I think it's a bit too long. And anyway, it requires a piano. The piece is funny, but it's really serious. It's a joining of sound and silence. It's an illustration of John Cage's belief that all sounds are music. He is encouraging us to listen. The performers in 4.33 are actually the audience members, coughing, rustling in their seats, shifting their feet. These little sounds are the music, along with the silence around them. Cage says his favorite sound is silence. And unless you're in a completely soundproof room, Silence is full of sounds. Whatever sounds he hears are fine with him, including the sound of traffic. He says 4.33 is different every time you hear it, and that makes it alive. Cage wants us to notice this. You might not be surprised to know that Cage was a student of Zen. I talked with my friend Kurt Rohde about time and music. He's a composer and a violist with the Left Coast Chamber Orchestra Ensemble in San Francisco. We talked about rhythm. There is rhythm and ritual in every human culture, drumming and rhythmic vocalization. And the phenomenon of rhythm is connected to the rhythm of life. The pulsations in the body, heartbeat, breath, are inescapable. Kurt said, in Western music, you group pulsations together. We're drawn toward symmetry. That's why three-quarter three time is so different from four-four time. It's unevenly weighted, and it forces us to attend in a different way. We are always trying to organize things in our mind rhythmically. Even long 
pieces, long sound patterns. The human brain is pattern-seeking. We form patterns out of sounds, whether they are random or not. We want to hear the beat in music, to feel when to tap the foot. Kurt says, I like to use the elasticity of time in my music to change the rhythm. How can a flow be prolonged and then disrupted? When the rhythm is varied unexpectedly, we wake up and hear freshly. Kurt says that in order to share his work, he has to take up people's time. And because of this, he feels a responsibility to free people from thinking about time while they are listening to his music. They give him their time, and he gives them a chance to lose track of time. When a piece is over, it's gone, like the past. But the good news, he says, is that there's nothing more to come. There's a completeness. When music is being made, everybody is listening, both music makers and audience. Kurt suggests bringing meditative practices to music, to listening. He says listening is democratic, shared. No one's in charge of your listening. He says, music imitates life maybe more than other arts because of its impermanence, because it flows, just as the time of our lives keeps flowing and changing. The Soren Gama Sutra, which we studied with Norman and Neil during the practice period, emphasizes listening. The Buddha asks 25 sages to describe the method each one used to break through to enlightenment. And the last to go is Kuan Yin, who says that listening to the cries of the world is her method, what she calls penetration, perfect penetration through hearing. Am I straying away from the subject of time here? No, because whatever you listen to, it takes time. If you're really listening, you don't interrupt and you don't slap labels on what you're hearing. When someone is speaking to you, you allow for silence. Listening to music, to a friend, to silence, to a stream, to the Dharma, is excellent practice in being present in the present moment, the only moment, the time of our life. Well, time has passed, and I'm at the end of my talk. How did this happen? All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. All things in the entire world are linked together as moments. Thank you. So I want to do our little 30-second time experiments, 30-second meditation time experiments. So um, for the next 30 seconds, the instruction is, I guess I can look at my watch because it has a second hand, yay. Um, Listen and Count every, notice every sound you hear. Count and label every sound you hear, which is not what you're supposed to do in listening practice. But in this case, just try. And some of you might be in a more sound-rich environment than we are here in the room at the church. It's very quiet here. But still, there are sounds. And so just listen 
And actually, count on your fingers what separate sounds you hear and try to think what they are and identify where they're coming from. And I will ring the bell at the beginning and the end of our 30 seconds. Okay. Okay, now we're going to do another 30 seconds. This time, listen, don't count, don't label, don't identify, just listen, try to listen to the silence and whatever's in it. Just listen and let it come to you. You can actually Listen as if the sound originates inside of you. Try that, as if you are making this sound, or if it's coming from you. So, listen to the sounds and the silence as one thing coming from you. Okay. Now I want to do one more listen, one more meditation experiment with time. This one is different. This is with time and memory. So I will guide you as we do this one. Think of a visual memory, a person's face, the face of someone you love, or some visual image in your memory, and see if you can really see it. Close your eyes and see if you can really, really see, see it.
Now, think of a sound memory, a familiar sound memory from your everyday life. Car starting, kettle boiling, whatever. Focus on it and see if you can actually hear it, not just remember hearing it. Can you actually hear it? Okay, now think of a smell memory, a smell you know, and see if you can smell it. Now call up a touch memory, the feel of something you touch, and see if you can actually feel that touch. Not just know you have the memory, but actually feel it. Okay, we'll do one more. Call up a taste memory and try to actually taste it now. Okay, so there's no particular hypothesis in this experiment and nothing to be proved, but 
if anybody would like to say anything about what they experienced in any of these three meditations, let me know, let us know. We're going to be going on to breakout groups in a little bit, but we have a little time if we want to talk about this. Was the, was the sound different when you labeled it or didn't label it? Were some senses easier or harder to recall? Yes, I see. Gregory, you want to unmute yourself and speak? You're muted still. You can't unmute. Maya has to unmute. Oh, Maya, I guess. Can you unmute Gregory, Maya? You're muted too. I did. They're great. You could do it now. Good. Thank you. Just briefly, when I could say many different things, but I thought this was particularly interesting. The other night I had the seafood dish that was the best version of the seafood dish I've ever had. And I didn't want it to end, so I just kept eating it even <laughs> after I was full because I wanted to keep the taste alive as long as I could. And I would say that the biggest problem that I have around these thought experiments is the recognition of how pale my memory is. I 